This is a Maybe You Like It production. To find more productions, including podcasts, radio plays, and stage plays, visit www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Welcome to Do Try This at Home. Caleb here, just jumping in before the podcast starts. We recorded season one of this podcast over the last few months before we knew exactly what the show was going to be or even that it'd be following a, a seasonal format. So things kind of change as the show goes on. And also we didn't have any social media accounts when we were recording. So if you want to get in contact or if you want to follow us or get any more information about the show, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do Try This Pod. And we'll have updates on season one and potential future seasons through those accounts. Right, on with the show. Take it away, Tom. Some films are mediocre, so bad they make you more. We're here to save the cinema. We do try this at home. Hello and welcome to this yet-to-be-named podcast. I'm Caleb Barron and I'm joined by my co-host, writer, actor, comic, Harrison Gale. Oof. That's a little generous comment. <laughs> nah. Though. Nah, you're a, you're a comic. <laughs> nah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you say so. <laughs> you're you're in an improv group. I think that makes you... That's comedy, right? I am. Well, yeah. Well... Sometimes it's not very funny. Whoa. <laughs> That's my hot take. That's I have some hot takes on improv comedy. <laughs> but Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we could we can do hot takes on improv comedy now, or we can do it another time. Yeah, but that that that's a whole that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Are we ever going to get Harrison's hot takes on improv comedy as a podcast? You'll you'll just have to wait till the end of the episode <laughs> to find out. <laughs> Okay, this is our first episode, so we're kind of just we're we're gonna be figuring yeah, it out. If you couldn't already tell, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't already obvious. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't obvious from the one on on your little uh, podcast app, then it will be obvious from the the two minutes that have preceded this moment right now. Of just complete and utter disorganized nonsense. Yeah, Harrison, how about you tell us what film we're doing this week? Sure. So this week. I think we chose a, a pretty uh, pretty formidable opponent this week. This week we'll be uh, taking a look at Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, his most recent release, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which came out last year. And I was very excited about it, but it didn't quite live up to what I needed it to. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll get into why that is, but uh, essentially, in short, it's about wash-up actor... Uh, Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, who is trying to revitalize his career after having a successful career on TV in the 50s, and now it's 1969 in Hollywood. Things aren't really going his way, but throughout all of his misfortune, he has his trusty stunt double, and I guess like, gentleman's gentleman, like half valet like confidant like and then just like dude that he essentially pays to hang out with him cliff booth played by the formidable brad pitt and they just sort of hang out all day meanwhile sharon tate and her then husband roman polanski are in town and something's brewing with the manson family and 
hilarity and violence ensue, as they usually do in a Tarantino film. Yeah, although not uh, not as much hilarity or violence as anyone was hoping for, I don't think. No. I never thought that any any filmmaker would get me to think to myself, God, I wish something really violent would happen yeah. right now. Yeah. But he managed no, to do it. He did it. He did it. it this is the thing. is uh, Other Tarantino films... I've never watched for the violence, but I feel as though they are. There's something that can can heighten the drama and the characters. Um, and I felt with this that the action was just. It was. It was. It became the thing that I had gone to see because the rest of the film was so nothing that it was like. You know, whenever I told someone about this film afterwards, I was like, well, you know, I guess there's I guess there's a decent payoff in the violent ending. But apart from that, there's not much else. And it's like, what? Why am I going to why am I paying? You know, like, I don't know how much cinema is where you are right now, but like, you know, I'm, I'm paying like 10, 10 pounds, 12 pounds to, 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 yeah, <laughs> to sit you know, sit in this room for like two and a half hours and then right at the end, just get like, you know, five minutes of of just like pretty grim violence. But apart from that, like what else, you know? Yeah. And and like, and I was so disappointed, especially coming from a person who I think like I generally consider myself a Tarantino fan. Like I wrote, you know, I double majored in English and film studies in college, and my film thesis was about Inglorious Bastards. It was about like a couple other movies, but uh, like you know, World War II movies that have you know, like that are alternate histories. But you know, of course, like Inglorious Bastards fits the bill. Um, yeah. So I like I wrote a whole I wrote a whole damn paper. I don't know if we'll have to bleep that, but put that out. <laughs> I wrote a whole darn paper. I wrote a whole doggone paper about, uh, you know, Glorious Bastards. So I do love Tarantino. When he does it right, like, he does it right. <coughs> but so I think that's part of why I think this was so disappointing to me. Also, because, like, you know, there are alternate history elements in this, which I, I love when movies kind of play around with what we know to be our reality because mm. it's a medium that can i think do it better than any other medium can because it's it's you know it is sort of photography and it looks so realistic but it can show us things that we know in real life can't happen and it can show us yeah. these things in a very visceral way that i think is challenging to do in other media yeah. so i was quite disappointed about the way that like you know it it uses those elements but i think I think it does have some some things going for it. Like I think, you know, I think there there are definitely interesting characters here. I think they were yeah. just misused. I think there's a lot of missed opportunities here because you know Tarantino is also not he's also not a bad screenwriter. I don't think. Like, you know, I think he won the Golden Globe because like his dialogue is just always so good. I, I and I completely agree with. Like all of that, and I think we're gonna. I think we'll probably end up keep comparing this to Inglorious because I think there's there's several elements that um, that are worth comparing, not just the the kind of um, rewriting of history element. I think you're right, though. I think that, that there's great characters here. I really, and on on a, a second time watching, the first time watching, I was just so disappointed the whole way through and so bored. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um 
I like when's somebody gonna stab somebody? Exactly. I didn't really take the time to acknowledge what what I wanted to like about the film. And on the second rewatch, I was kind of more annoyed by how much other elements of the film were winning me over. And Rick Dalton's character, the character of Rick Dalton, and the character of Cliff Booth did win me over on that second watch. And yeah, I, I you know what I think, and I think Tarantino is a good screenwriter, but I I don't think that his dialogue in this film is is anything that great. I I think maybe you'll disagree with me. I think Brad Pitt, the way he speaks and acts as a character, is pretty anachronistic in this film. I don't he doesn't feel like he's in the sixties at all, um, which is weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think like. You know, I think anachronism can be fine, and I think that that can actually be something really, like, a really neat element in a film. You know, I kind of think of, like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Donkey Skin by Jacques Demy, but it's it's a film adaptation of a a French fairy tale, and there's a scene where, like, it's sort of set in, like, this, this, this mystical land. It has a very bizarre plot, which is essentially that, like, this this king decides that he wants to marry his daughter but anyway oh and it's also starring Catherine Deneuve who I think um like is almost a doppelganger for real life Sharon Tate but anyway um that's neither here nor there but in that in that film there's a scene where like even though it's set in this fantasy land like like a giant helicopter just descends on the scene um and which is which is so bizarre, but it, like I think it works at least in the style of that film, which is very campy and very weird. So I think like you know, and especially with some, like again comparing it to something like Glorious Bastards*, like and also I think in in Quentin Tarantino's style of filmmaking, like you know he'll throw in like music from whenever, and you know like in *Glorious Bastards* is like the whole sequence of Shoshana like getting ready, and it's set to a David Bowie song, and I think that yeah. that stuff can work but it has to be deliberate and i i agree that it feels like especially in like some of brad pitt's characterizations who i think did a great job anyway but i think you know certain certain choices aren't like they they feel like they're not deliberate i think that's it i didn't do something with it and and i didn't feel like he was doing anything with it um and, and uh, I mean, yeah, that's like one of the smallest nitpicks I have for this film. I think there's so much bigger. <laughs> yeah, there's bigger <laughs> problems here. Bigger but... Well, let's let's dig into some of the... No, let's dig into some of the stuff that we would keep, though. Let's be... Let's start positive. What... So, I mean, we already talked about the, the characters. Um, what, what, you know, what is it do you think that we want this film to be? What is it from the actual film that we want to keep? I mean, I, my first instinct is is... To keep the Manson stuff, but make that the focus. Because I think, you know, that was so much of, like, the advertising, the selling point of the film, that it's, like, you know, capturing this moment that, for so many people, was the end of the 60s. Like, this is the swinging 60s coming to an end and crashing and burning. The party is over, and the way that this party ends this pop culture party ends is with this horrible violent attack that happens to these you know this movie star and her you know famous and and wealthy friends so i think like you know centering it around that event and sort of expanding the role that the manson family plays i think is like i want to keep them and i want to know more about them like i think right in the way that in the final version of the film 
you know, there's some of those elements, but, you know, they're just very background and it feels like it comes back into play at the end in not a very, like, significant or satisfying way that it feels just sort of, like, tossed in, like, oh, yeah, I mentioned them earlier. Let me make sure I, like, glance at them again. Yeah. And yeah. and I would want it to be, I, w- I would want the these characters to then, you know, like, they're these these actors are people a part of that you know magical kind of glamorous world that the Manson family is trying to attack and taking those characters and and sort of like now taking them out of that beautiful glamorous world how do they do now that they're trying to investigate something that is trying to tear down everything that has made them successful my my feeling is that this this film is is two films kind of wrestling with each other. On the one hand, you have a film about Rick Dalton, a failing actor, a kind of jobbing actor as well. The way that he's taking on these heavy roles in in all of these westerns, just one, you know, or well, not just westerns, different TV shows, just one episode at a time, and he's just trying to like eke out a living that way. I think it's really interesting. But like, there's that story, and then there's the story of the Manson family. And Sharon, you know, the lead up to Sharon Tate's murder or not murder in in this film. And I think that those two films never mesh. They never blend in this. And and yeah, my feeling is you kind of got to you've you've either got to pick one and go with it. So either this is a Manson family film, although that's kind of been done to death, or this is a Rick Dalton film. And we and you can you can have those elements of. The, you know the the swinging sixties coming to the, the end, and also this feeling like the the, the end of the, the golden age of Hollywood as well. And you can kind of just put that in, in the background, but you kind of got to choose one, or you've got to find a way of actually bringing these two stories together, which I don't think that the film actually does. What I kind of like is I enjoyed seeing Rick Dalton go about his business on set that that one day, and I didn't mind that. I think it's a little boring in places, but I think it, it could be worked on to make it interesting. And and this this slow realization that he's going to have to take on these roles in these spaghetti westerns to to keep afloat, and that the way that he thought Hollywood worked isn't the way it works anymore. I I I don't mind that. What I think we you could get more out of is Cliff Booth's uh, driving about. <laughs> Yeah, so give give me something with this guy, <laughs> right? He's charismatic, but not that charismatic. Like, how much of the runtime of this film is just Brad Pitt driving up and down the streets of a '60s Hollywood? And it's, yeah, it's so much of him just yeah, of just driving, of like picking up an underage girl. It's just weird, and I didn't get any of that. Like, it, I don't understand what that was trying to do. I like I. And and the when he goes to the Spawn Ranch and he goes to see George in in the there was all this thing about like I, I guess it was trying to build tension around the Manson family, right? But I didn't feel the tension and I just didn't understand that whole conversation with George and they're just back and forth and, and I'm like maybe I'm missing something, but I'm just like, what is this for? Right, because it doesn't even, like, aside from the fact that, like, oh, he recognizes them from the ranch when the, you know, the family shows up and, and, and attacks him at the end of the film, aside from, like, that it gives him, like, the visual recognition of them, it doesn't really serve any other narrative purpose, because they show up then and then they disappear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that, and is that worth 20 minutes? <laughs> it, it's just not worth the runtime that's put into that. And I just think, 
you know what? If you're going to have Cliff Booth get caught up in the Manson family as part of the film, then let's get him really caught up in it. Let's get him like right. mired in all of what's going on there. Let's make it weird. Let's make it uh, uncomfortable. Let's really dig into what what is that. And you know what? In some ways, although I don't like the look of telling this story completely from the perspective of these made up people, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, I also... I, I don't think that actually any of what Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate was doing throughout this was anything to contribute to the story. Right. Yeah. The bit that really angered me is is the, the they go to, to the party uh, in the first, you know, in the first sort of first act of the film. And uh, there's a scene, if you could call it a scene, I feel like the first 45 <laughs> minutes of this film doesn't really have any scenes. Um, apart from the one with Al Pacino, <laughs> it's just like, and even that like takes forever. But yeah, the thing I really gets me is is Steve McQueen uh, gives us this little exposition dump where he's just stood there at this party, like smoking a cigarette, and he's like, "Oh, you know, she's engaged to this guy, and then she makes a film with this guy, and then she gets engaged to this guy and marries him, and then this guy, and then they're all together as a three now." And I'm just like, that is the least interesting way of telling me about Sharon Tate and her relationship with JC Bring and Roman Polanski possible. Right. And and like that and also that information like doesn't doesn't mean anything later because yeah. it's it's honestly not even important that we know that it's not even important that we know that she's in a relationship with Roman Polanski, let alone Jay Sebring, because it doesn't, none of it matters by the end. And not yeah, exactly. And so I you know what? Like in some ways, I I would I would be tempted to just cut, actually cut um, Sharon Tate and and all of the the people around her out of this film. Apart from maybe just having her be the neighbor who we never really see until maybe the end when when she survives. I mean, I have a I have a take on that. I mean, I think I think first of all, yeah, there's way too many characters in this movie, most of whom like are not important, and it's just like Tarantino expressing the symptoms of what I like to call George Lucas syndrome, which is when a director has been around, like has become so famous and so like has so much clout that when they do anything, no one wants to either like they're surrounded by yes men or no one wants to give them meaningful feedback or edits. And the director just like does whatever they want, regardless of it, whether it's like actually focused or good storytelling. And then you get something like, you know, the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, which was all written by George Lucas with virtually no input from anyone else. And it's not a very good story, in, in my in my opinion. And I think this movie is an example of that. I think most of the movie is just Quentin Tarantino, like, expressing the symptoms of George Lucas syndrome instead of, like, focusing on a story. And I think there's too, too many characters. He's playing around too much in this movie in order to tell a good story. So cut out most of those characters, I think, like, you know, you maybe get a little bit of the glamour, but having so much of it is not necessary. What I what I do think though is I think I think Sharon Tate could have been a really compelling character, but she's just a wasted opportunity. Like I think you know I don't know why why do we have a whole scene of her watching herself in the movie theater? That like that it's a waste of time. It doesn't tell me anything about her except that it like implies that she's vain enough to like go and watch herself in a movie. But I think like I think the idea of, you know, like she was this very talented actress cut down in her prime. I think the idea of like her arc being 
you know, somehow like, you know, maybe they're, they're hypothetically. So rather than having it be Rick and Cliff, like driving around for two hours and 20 minutes and then 20 minutes of almost random violence, it could be like Rick and Cliff keep hearing about this weird, like cult thing in town or in the outskirts of town. Maybe, like, Sharon keeps getting, like, weird phone calls or something, and then somehow at, like, a party, they cross paths, and they get on the subject of this weird thing that's happening, and they're like, you've heard about that too? And then it almost becomes, like, like a, almost sort of like the, like an acid-dipped detective story that, you know, then gives her something to do where now, you know, she's in the role of, like, you know, okay, well, I'm gonna investigate this thing and it's and it's her journey of going from like ingenue to actually realizing that she is very capable and that she has agency and she can defend herself and she can do all of the things that you know Hollywood as this beautiful actress doesn't expect her to be able to do and I think that that to me is something very Tarantino that he he's known for these strong female protagonists that like gain agency and they're doing stuff and they are defending themselves and they're doing all the things that no one else expects them to be able to do. Like, you know, Glorious Bastards, there's Shoshana and uh, Bridget von Hammersmark. And in Kill Bill, you know, it's all about the bride and how, you know, she was wronged and now she is taking her revenge and she's not going to take this violence having been done to her sitting down and of course Jackie Brown like you know that kind of female protagonist is so Tarantino and I think he is very good at writing these like strong women with agency so it felt it almost felt weird to me that there wasn't any of that in this movie or you know Hateful Eight point is like you know that is like so it's like it's an element like the strong female protagonist I think like, I, ha- I hate that phrase because it implies that, like, like, you know, that this, like, <laughs> normal is male and that, you know, female is somehow a deviation from the typical strong protagonist. But he's, I, you know, I think that that is, I can't think of a better name for it, but that is such a mainstay, I think, of Tarantino's writing that it feels weird that it's not here. And I think you could cut out all of the other, like, big Hollywood characters, even, like, Roman Polanski, he's not really relevant at all, except that he's, that her, he's her husband, and just focus on, like, kind of, like, investigation of this weird thing that's happening in town, and each character's arc becomes that they are discovering what, what they're really capable of and who they really are. So you have Rick Dalton, who's this washed up actor. He thinks like the only thing that he can do is act and that's not working for him. And then through this process learns that, you know, he's more than just washed up spaghetti Western guy. And then you have Cliff who, at you know, by this point of all of the years that he's been, you know, basically like Rick Dalton's paid friend, aside from being a stunt double, is that like, you know, he is his own person that is independent of Rick. And then you have Sharon, who starts out as, you know, this doe-eyed, you know, beautiful actress that nobody really expects anything of aside from her being able to, you know, play a character in a movie who finds that she is actually a very 
capable person and she can defend herself and that she's more than what people think she is. So that's, I think, narratively how I would how I would tackle it. I really love that. And I think what it does, you know, what Tarantino is beginning to build in this film, but doesn't ever actually achieve is these three characters who kind of can go about doing their own things um, and we can follow all three of their threads at once. And I don't mind that if you're actually doing something with those threads rather than not. And and I think that, I think what's really interesting about that idea as well, I, I feel as though, because there's this thing where he, you know, he puts the date on the, on the screen at the beginning and it's February. And then we do a six month jump, which I mean, don't get me started on how much that annoys me because I think it doesn't make any sense. You know, time jumps have to do something. <clears throat> yeah. And then Tarantino puts on the date, you know, that Sharon Tate's going to get murdered and that's the whole thing. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't know what it's like in the U S how much the, the murder of Sharon Tate is still within the sort of cultural zeitgeist or cultural consciousness within the, within the UK that is just, simply not the case anymore yeah i imagine whatever it is here it's even less in the uk and you know what what really frustrated me is, is in we have moments where you know steve mcqueen's explaining sharon tate's relationship with to, with these random people we don't need to see we have a moment where al pacino explains the concept of the heavy hero dynamic within a tv show and then explains how studios use that to create new heroes in new TV shows. Yet we never have an explanation of why the date is important and what the urgency of that situation is. There is nothing to explain that. And I know that, you know, Tarantino said to people like, do your homework before you come in and see the film. But what film is asking me to do my homework? But do I have to? Like, <laughs> like that's, a, that's, but that's ridiculous, right? That's stupid. Yeah. I don't, I think that's a very absurd expectation of an audience. Yeah. And, but actually by, by, by building an investigation into it, we, and, and maybe you do start in February and maybe we work our way through those six months slowly. Um, and, and actually you build a sense of urgency into that story and we can, and you know, you can still end it in, a, a similar ending to what we currently have. You can still end it in that moment of violence, but actually you build an urgency towards that moment of violence. And so when we reach it, not only as an audience, are we ready for it? And also like, you know, not pleading with the film to reach it like we are now, but like in a, you know, pleading for it to, to get to that point in a different way, because the narrative has actually built us up towards that point. But there's a sense of, there can be a sense of urgency leading to that scene where it feels like, Oh, all of the threads of this story are coming together. And I know this is going to end in a bloodbath because it's Tarantino, but and I can really sense that. Oh, are they? You know, are the are the characters that I've been following for the last you know hour and a half, two hours, going to make it through this situation that Tarantino is now placing them in because they have to be placed in that situation because that's what happened in in history. That's the the real story of what happened. So you're still rewriting that history, but you're you're building it a sense of urgency around the event that, that you've placed this whole film upon, which yeah, to me, it feels like a no brainer. There was no urgency in the, in, in this, you know, in the theatrical cut. And that's something that you could so easily build into this film, because why would you not want to have a sense of urgency towards a, a, a climactic fight? Right. And, and, and that's what, and that's what suspense is, right? It's the anticipation of a particular event, but the uncertainty of whether the event will play out as you expect. 
but there but there isn't any of that <laughs> another way you could do that as well is you know is in not doing a time you know in, in doing a, a jump of six months but actually we see sharon tate get more and more pregnant through that period of time mm-hmm. and and that's interesting because we know that she was late in her pregnancy when she was murdered and you know you might not necessarily know that but you can sense the importance of that if you if you don't know the history of it if you actually show that happening so that there's there's a kind of building it and but also actually if the film is about her gaining agency and and realizing things that she she didn't know she could do before that people didn't assume she could do actually what you know what better way of of showing that progression if actually she's you know a woman becoming pregnant it's the you know a kind of like that's such a not a burden but that's such a difficult time in a in a woman's life that's such a challenging thing it's like fargo yeah, exactly. You know, Fargo, yeah, yeah. Uh, Frances McDormand uh, is pregnant. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes her character so compelling, that already she's this woman who has so much agency mm. and she is so capable and way more competent than anybody in the police department yeah. where she works. Yeah. And and she's able to, you know, solve this crazy case while pregnant on top of all that, you know, getting up at five in the morning and, and, you know, driving the cold and all the while she's pregnant. Like that says so much about her character. And I think, yeah, there could be some great parallels to that kind of yeah. character. And also, you know, speaking to the the capacity and agency of, you know, motherhood and the maternal. Yeah. Because there's there we have an assumption within our society that pregnancy is uh is is weakness in in those nine months and actually if the realization of how strong you are is during the your pregnancy then that's a complete breaking of that uh, assumption that we have uh, within society now I, I think that that would be that's such a like we talk there's so many missed opportunities and that is such a missed opportunity. Uh, yeah, and it's like you say, it kind of surprises you because of what Tarantino has done previously. I think like that kind of breaking of assumptions and subverting expectations—that is so Tarantino, and it and it and it's weird that it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I think that's it, and and I think because you know the I guess the kind of term that often goes with this sort of using cinematic language to subvert expectations is is Tarantino as an auteur director, right? And actually, the only thing that feels auteur about this film as it is now is that Tarantino breaks a load of rules of convention, but actually to the the detriment of the of the story he's telling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you know. Yeah, none of the rule breaking yeah. here serves the well, story. This is the thing, way. right? And and my feeling, you know, apart from these sort of big story beats that we're talking about. The, the thing that I think is the weakness of this film is that Tarantino can't decide how to give us information mm-hmm. because there are moments where he's giving us information by placing them on the screen, like the date, which I mentioned, which, you know, that I don't mind if it's just the date, but then, you know, he, he tells us that we're at the Spawn Ranch by a, a big truck driving in or being in, in the way and it says Spawn Movie Ranch on it. Okay, that's how we know that, that that's the location. But then when they go to the Playboy Mansion for a party, he puts that on the screen. Right. And it, <laughs> so which is I, it? So it's like, okay, so how, 
How do you want to tell me that information? Okay. But then also he has a voiceover that cuts in for one line during the Al Pacino scene in the, in the, the bar. And then it comes back later to tell us what happened in the six months intervening that we've missed. So, okay, are you, and, but, and when it comes back, it doesn't just tell us what happens in that six months intervening, but it tells us the story of what's happening during that day. And, but then also we have moments of these big exposition dumps that I've already mentioned of Al Pacino telling us what a heavy and a hero is. Uh, Steve McQueen is, is telling us Sharon Tate's previous relationships and how they work. We have these moments where there's big exposition just dumped on us in these long speeches in the dialogue. And it's like, okay, just take a second. How do you want to give us information in this film? Right. Because you can't give it to us in all of these different ways because it, it, it doesn't serve the story to do that. It, it just makes it feel like I'm just being constantly fed random information that doesn't have any connection to each other. Yeah. And it feels so uncinematic in, yeah. in, in, in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. None of those ways mentioned is, is, is special to cinema. Right. Like, it's weird that it's, it's called, like, it's always referred to as, like, this love letter to cinema or love letter to Hollywood, and yet yeah. so little of it is, like, really using film form to tell the story in, in a way that only film could. That it almost feels like a play. It's almost like it's like waiting for Godot set in Hollywood and not a play and in a film. So I'm just yeah, like sitting yeah. and staring at these two guys goofing off for two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of like that's that's the thing as well. Right. Is that when I when, you know, I was seeing all these interviews building up to, to getting to watch it. You know, there's all of this talk of like this. Yeah. This love letter to, to golden age Hollywood film. And, and this golden age, I, I wanted it to feel like a golden age Hollywood film. Yeah. Uh, like, why can't we? And your idea to frame it around this almost sort of detective story of them uncovering more and more about the Manson family. Well, you know, noir or like that kind of thing, that's a genre that was big in the 30s and then had a resurgence in the, in the late 50s and early 60s. Like using that genre do a, a love letter to Hollywood about this period in Hollywood history, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Or even like American New Wave. Like they like there's so many yeah. different types of film that you could be gesturing to in in the very form of the film. Or even like, you know, if you want to go like French New Wave, you could, or even like, or even one of the big like studio like what is it like like something cinemascope type like grand productions with these bright yeah. colors and you know a, a big sweeping score and big stars you know using those elements to tell this story about this grand you know swinging time in hollywood but i think i think also yeah and just in the way that it's filmed and the way that it's edited doesn't feel like it's really gesturing toward anything. It feels like a movie made right now that like happens to have people in go-go boots. In yeah, <laughs> exactly. And if it if it felt like one of those sort of big studio cinemascope bright films, and then at the end you have you know these three people trying to murder um, you know our main characters, and then 
getting into this brutal fight. That would be so interesting to see that, having seen a film mm-hmm. that is of a completely different form. Right. And and because it's violence that couldn't have been shown in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, so to show that within a film that feels like it's from the 60s would be shocking. Right. And and, I, and that, again, another it feels like another missed opportunity. Yeah. And, and St- Steven Soderbergh kind of does that in The Good German, which wasn't very successful. But it was this film that was like a love letter to those like almost melodramatic movies like set in World War II from the 40s. Like, you know, very much influenced by like Casablanca and that kind of movie. And the very film form is is gesturing towards that that it's in black and white but it has this weird and interesting twist that there are plot elements and elements in the movie that we see and the way that people talk that you couldn't have done in the 40s like people swear and there's sex scenes and you like you couldn't have done any of that in the 40s but since we mean now like you're you're showing these other elements of you know the human experience and human behavior with this aesthetic of that kind of film, which I think this one could have done something like that, you know, and I, and I love this, this idea you bring up of like, you know, grand cinemascope for, you know, first two hours and then tagging on at the end, this brutally violent scene that you could never have done in the sixties and almost feels like the winter's tale in the way that the genre just does a 180 which I think can work if you do it right. I definitely can. And and like, because that's what Soderbergh's playing with is this kind of postmodern genre mashing that audiences will allow these days that, that wouldn't have been accepted before, mm-hmm. the, you know, your Soderbergh's and your Tarantino's and people like that came along. And I think that that kind of bringing together of, of, of genres or pushing one genre through another lens is exciting. And that's... You know, this film, it just feels like, uh, you know, Tarantino is like at the height of his powers and he's like, I just want to keep experimenting. But he's finding the wrong avenues to experiment in. And and it's it, it makes for a film that is a much more challenging watch than it should be. It should be so much fun and it's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember reading somewhere that the origins of this film started as a novel and that made so much sense to me because I think like this kind of like meandering and I guess honestly I would say pseudo character study because I feel like we really don't get to know the characters very well despite seeing them you know despite it being so much a day in the life like that I think can work as a novel because you know it's in the written word so much of it can be like their inner psyche and then, you know, them parsing out how they're feeling about things internally. But the way that cinema is structured as an art form is like, it means that for the most part, in most standard feature narrative films, the camera acts as this objective, to an extent, observer. So there's the, the camera that is pointing and looking at stuff. And you, it's very difficult to try to get the subjective view of people or like figuring out what their psyche is just by like by what their visible demonstrable behavior is and that's like that's why you know in screenwriting classes they're always telling you you know tell us who these your characters are through what they're doing through behavior and we really don't see enough of their behavior 
you know, at least from from Rick and Cliff, because it's sort of like almost a mundane day in the life. And and I think like that is part of the problem of, of, of this movie. Like I can see how that might be an experimental thing, but if you're coming at it from like, you know, Hollywood screenwriting structure perspective of just the goal of telling a compelling story, like the the reason why, you know, the movie or the story exists in the first place is typically because for these characters, this day or this period of time is somehow yeah. different from yeah. the rest of the you know the rest of their lives right and so i think what why this movie is so irritating to me in the way that it's currently structured is because what would be the inciting incident which is you know the manson family comes and attacks cliff doesn't happen until the last 20 minutes of the movie so the whole other like 2 hours and 20 minutes is just us seeing status quo for them and that, for me, is why it's so boring and why it feels like it drags. Because then the inciting incident, the thing that would make this period of time different from the rest of Cliff Booth's life or the rest of Rick Dalton's life, we don't see until the very end. This is the kind of the crazy thing about it is, is it, it kind of feels like part one of a novel and then and then you'd have a part two. and And that would be the... Well, actually, what were the implications of this? And and with rewriting history, isn't it interesting to kind of eke out what are the you know what changes does this bring about? And and I think with this, this is again what frustrates me. I think all of the information we're given in the first two hours of this film about the characters, about their day to day life, about the progression that Rick is slowly working through, and that Cliff, you know, the realizations Cliff is coming to, all of that could be told in twenty minutes to half an hour. If you act, and this is what, you know, cinema is part of what's exciting about it is because we have visual shorthands at this point in cinema's history that will just tell stories for you without you having to do that. No. You see that in advertising these days. And this is a terrible example, but the first five minutes of Up, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, told, <laughs> Honestly, we're told a whole excellent story filmmaking. Visually. Like, no, but for real, right? like, like, I think that's a great example because we, we learn the life story of these two people mm. of this couple in the span of a couple of minutes using yeah. only visuals and we care about them almost instantly and <laughs> this film doesn't do any of that it is two hours, it takes two hours and 20 minutes to tell me who these people are and by the end of it i still don't care yeah yeah no i and this is the thing Get, okay you want to give us a day in the life you want to show us you know rick dalton on set and trying to like do it as a, a jobbing actor and all of this stuff well you know do this for 20 minutes give us a look into that and then build the you know start building the suspense towards the manson family and then maybe put that attack at the end of the second act and then we get to see what happens afterwards right um and and even doing uh an inglorious bastard style actually they go to the Manson family and really rewriting history that way, mm -hmm. you know, could be more interesting than what we got. And there's so many, and there's so many things like, you know, you were talking about this. There's so many characters that Tarantino just cannot balance and it's, and there's just name dropping throughout. And there's like, right. Just so like many we things. get it. You know about like Hollywood in the 60s. And there's so many things that just don't make sense to me. Like there's the bit where Sam Wanamaker comes into the, <laughs> the costume truck and he starts explaining to the costume designer 
this is what I think we should do with the costume on the day that they're shooting this film, this uh, TV show. Right. That does that is that how it works? No, I'm I'm pretty sure it's not. Like, yeah. Surely you would have a conversation about that beforehand. Yeah, it's not um, even really a day in the life because there's a bunch of stuff that happens that would not happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, and also like the other moment that really sticks in my head is the moment where Cliff fights Bruce Lee. Oh, I mean, man, don't get me isn't, started. Like, isn't Bruce Lee, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but the impression I've always got is that Bruce Lee was was quite a nice guy and, and well-respected. Yeah, yeah. And why... Why would you choose as a filmmaker? <laughs> Does he know like and and also Bruce Lee's like like you know part of what he's known about is he he kind of bridged the gap between east and west, right? In in a period when it was right. quite important to do Hugely so. Hugely influential. Why as a filmmaker would you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm I'm going to rewrite Bruce Lee as this jerk, as this really <laughs> arrogant guy. And he, and then you know what else right. I'm going to do? I'm going to get this white guy to just beat him up. <laughs> like, right like he's like you know who, you know who needs to be taken down a couple pegs bruce yeah. lee and then is like i'm gonna make this dude like the worst yeah. person you'll ever meet in your entire life which nobody who has any like even a vague yeah. understanding of who bruce lee is would would yeah. believe and then on top of that the optics of like like white guy who literally does nothing else with his time but drive around and hang out with a guy like just yeah, decimates yeah. him. You know, you know that guy who died tragically young. Well, what if we, <laughs> you know, who did, who never actually got to like it's fully about time. all of the influence he might have had on our on our world. What about if we just actually target him? And this is it. And uh, Tarantino picks such weird targets. He does the same thing with the little girl, is like Marabella or something. Who talks to Leo DiCaprio? Trudy Fraser. Yeah, is the actress. Yeah, yeah. Not not in real life, but in he does the this really weird thing where he seems to be using her as a as a kind of way of joking about people who do method acting. Because when they first meet, you know, she's like, "I actually prefer to be referred to as my character name right. and all this stuff," and it feels like it's really targeting it. And I'm like, you know, like you can't punch up in a joke. You can't punch up to actors who who hold themselves in high regard if the butt of the joke is a little girl. Right, that doesn't work. It does. It just doesn't work. Like, what are you aiming? Also, at? and also, a little girl who just does her job better than Rick Dalton does. Exactly. Like, she's even, not drunk. She's trying yeah. to be focused. Like, she's. I just even don't, even what? if the method stuff is annoying, like it's still yeah. working for her because she's delivering a product that's better than what Rick Dalton is doing. <laughs> so the joke doesn't make any sense. You're exactly. like, oh yeah, that's annoying, but it works. Like that's not. That's not the point. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. It that like I just. What are you taking aim at? And I feel like there's so much of this film of this extra miscellaneous garbage around what the story is in the middle that I just feel like, what are you trying to get at? What you know? Why? What's the point? And you know, and some stuff in films like it can be interesting to to go on a tangent or to see something beyond the main story, and I can understand that. But I also think so often I think what what purpose does it serve to have this in the film? And if it doesn't serve any purpose, then then you should be questioning yourself as a filmmaker. Why is that there? You know, and if we're rewriting it, well, that's the first stuff I would choose to take out because it's just. Yeah, you have to trim the fat. Exactly. You have to kill your darlings as much as you love them. And I, I think 
Like, even just with Cliff's backstory. Not that it, it's not even that I would cut it out, but that there, like, there's, there's stuff that he mentions as throwaway lines. Mm. And you're like, whoa, hold up. Like, that he might have killed his wife mm. and we're not sure. Like, that's, that's what a crazy thing to say. And then, like, never address <laughs> again. It's like, it's almost like, it's like in the room where, like, Lisa's mother is like, I got the test results back. I think I have, like, <laughs> breast cancer. And then Lisa's like, oh, don't worry, Mom. It'll be fine. And then they never talk about it again. That's how I felt when they were like, Cliff Booth might have murdered his wife. And they never talk about it again. Like, what a, like, what a thing to explore in a movie that, like, like is skirting around, like, yeah. this horrible murder that's going to happen, like, you know, what if there's, like, a, you know, they, they go on this investigation, and then there's a, like, you know, a twist at the end, and Cliff has been involved with the man since the whole time, mm. and, like, he killed his wife as part, or, like, something, like, something yeah. to explain why we get that bit of information that feels so <laughs> huge that we never talk about, it's, and why have the backstory? And again, like, it's played as a joke, and I'm like... Right. What's the? Like, I don't think. What is like, the what joke? Is the joke what, here? You know, why can't we find out? Or you know, either find out that Cliff has actually been the bad guy the whole time, or find out that his wife has been fine in like you know she's living elsewhere and they just broke up. And then right. actually, and actually, the joke is that he's just been like playing along with this idea that he murdered her because he, you know, because it, it gave a sense, you know, it gave a sense of, it made him more menacing or more interesting or, you know, whatever. Because people talk about it on set and things like that. Maybe he likes that attention and that's why he did it. You know, like, you can explain those things. And that's playing around again with like, you know, this idea of like the history that we know. Is it mm. true? Like how, like, you know, because like he goes along with this whole crazy story and, but it turns out not to be true or, you know, something like that, that it feels like all of the elements are all serving what the core of the story is or like what this movie is about. That you can yeah. have all of these elements that seem miscellaneous at first, but then when you get the, to the big climax of the movie, you see, oh, this is how all of these things connect and it makes perfect sense. Like, it, like yeah. you know, a good twist is like, oh, I didn't see that coming, but it makes perfect sense that that would happen. Not like, exactly. oh, like that just came out of left field and I don't understand it. Like, which is kind of how like the murder, ha like not murder because, well, well, Cliff is doing a lot of, is doing the murdering. But like, he, that's he what does the, a lot of yeah, that's what the Manson attack feels like at the end. It's like, I guess like, yeah. well, first of all, you do kind of see it coming because you, you sort of, you, most people, I think in US audiences will know that like, they hear, they hear, you know, Charles Manson, and they know that he's a bad dude. Like, they know that he was, yeah. you know, a murderer. And they, they know that, and he yeah. was, like, you know, in the news on and off for, like, you know, just saying crazy things while, you know, getting sentenced and all this other stuff. So they know that, like, they have a sense that Charles Manson is bad news to an extent. Yeah. And, but, like, you know, the to see, like, like, the attack on Cliff at the end is, like, there's, it's both out of left field and also not surprising at all. Yeah. And yeah. doesn't feel like it's motivated in any way. You know, and I think that that, that name of Charles Manson, Manson still has some of that, you know, weight attached to it, this side of the pond. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate that. The side of the Atlantic. <laughs> but um, but he, we never actually hear him explicitly be called Charles Manson. He's called Charlie and, and it's kind of hinting at it. And the one time we do see him, 
He just walks up the driveway and then walks off. He and he doesn't even seem that menacing. <laughs> like you, here's a choice. Again, here's a choice. Show Charles Manson and show him as unhinged and menacing and and you know bad news or don't show him at all and 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 have him as this yeah. this villain behind the scenes who we we never meet explicitly who and and build a a mythology around him a legend around him that is the legend that has been built around him since then as you know this terrible and you know shocking character within uh, American history and and within that specific period, and you can do that without ever having to show him. But just showing him as this guy just wanders up a driveway and is like, oh, I, I, yeah, all right, and then just wanders <laughs> off. <laughs> like, why? Why? <laughs> yeah, it just and, and yeah, it's sad because it, it yeah, it feels like there are a lot of missed opportunities here, and you can see like flickers yeah. of what could be really genius and and. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, there it feels like there are so many missed opportunities that if you tweaked a bunch of these elements, would all form like a like a a story that like has these elements gesturing towards the same theme. And then if you you know if you rework it so that it's you know Rick Cliff and Sharon like trying to figure out this mystery of the man says I even thought you know reworking you know if you have that set up for the main story structure. The the ending, you keep that attack, but sort of turn it from like this moment where you know, as as it historically was with with Sharon Tate and uh, you know her friends getting ambushed, and it turns it on his head, and that becomes the trap that they are like, okay, we're gonna get these guys, and we they're gonna think that they're catching us off guard. We'll pretend like we don't know about this. Go go about. I'll go about my evening as usual, and then when they show up. Then you have this massive showdown yeah. and bloodbath. However, you know, all, you know, in the same way that that Tarantino does it in the film, and it and it completely subverts the expectation. It gives back agency to Sharon Tate after having it taken away from her, and it gives some sort of like narrative meaning or significance to the this violent event. I think that's what Tarantino does so well that he. Like, his movies are very violent, but they are all motivated by something. But it's sort of, like, that is the, like, aestheticization of violence. That it's sort of like, you know, how, like, like you know, in literature, God damn it. In literature, they tell you sex means everything but sex. And then when it just is sex, then it's not literature anymore. Now it's pornography. And it's sort of like, that's the thing with violence. That, like... Violence is, you know, when used correctly in, I think, any art form, but especially something like cinema, and I think typically this is what Tarantino does so well. What Tarantino does so well with violence is that, like, you know, the way that he uses it in cinema, it's not, like, it's not just violence. The violence is there because it means something else. If you take that, like, if you want to keep the ending scene as it is, you got to make the violence represent something else. You know, because cinema is all visual symbols, and when it when it just means the thing that it's showing you, it's not compelling anymore. Because now, now it's not yeah. cinema. Now it's not the art form. So I think, like you know, that's a way of taking what what historically was this horrible act of violence, turning it on its head, giving Sharon Tate back her agency that was taken from her historically. And giving the violence a significance. And then, like, the violence is not just, you know, dude who accidentally got high on acid, like, 
beats up and murders a bunch of hippies. Now it's like, you know, I, like I'm even imagining like a scene of of Sharon like like stabbing like one of the Manson family or something. And that act of violence becomes like, you're not going to take away my agency. You're not going to take away my personhood. You're not going to violate me. I'm turning that back around on you. And that also gestures toward like, you know, slasher films and like pulpy stuff from the seventies that comes later, which is what we're flowing into from the end of the sixties where it's like, you know, final girl. And and she, like, this one girl of this group of friends who've all been murdered, she's the only one left. Yeah. And, you know, then she takes, like, so, it's usually a knife, you know, takes it and kills whoever the murderer is. And that's, like, you know, turning around what was once, like, this violating phallic object and taking, yeah. like, taking it back as a woman, as a source of agency, or, like, from the feminine perspective, as a source of agency, turning it back around on the thing, the masculine you know, patriarchal, I hate to sound, you know, <laughs> well, listen, I went to Barnard, so <laughs> this is what you get from our education. You know, taking that, like, you know, law of the father, like, now we're getting Lacanian, like, law of the father kind of, like, like thing that's been violating you and the people yeah. around you and turning it around and destroying that thing with the very yeah. tool it was trying to use to, to hurt you or to destroy you. And I think, like, yeah, there's it just makes me so mad because it's going to be so good and, and again it's that thing of if we're making it feel like a film from the 60s and then tarantino is placing this trope from a decade later in the late 60s it's it's building yeah all of this this love of cinema that he claims to have and he proves <laughs> by by name dropping over and over like look at all these movies I know. into the story you're telling exactly and i think yeah and i think even um you know, one thing I do like from the film that I wouldn't mind keeping is is the way that um, the way that Rick finally gets introduced to Sharon Tate at the end, which is he's just killed a bunch of hippies and he's you know flamethrowered them and uh, and then he's you know and then it, it's Jay Sebring, but you could change it a bit. <laughs> he's like, oh, dude, what happened? He's like, I just killed a bunch of hippies <laughs> and then. The- <laughs> And then he's like, oh, cool, come be our friend. Yeah, that part <laughs> slaps. You know what, though? You can do that because why not have it? You know, we have this, like, sort of prologue, semi-first act, which is, like, a day in the life, which leads into all three of them separately deciding, or maybe Rick and Cliff together, deciding to investigate the Manson family. Then at the end of the second act, there is a smaller act of violence that happens... It can either be like in their driveway or something, or it could be somewhere else, but Sharon Tate happens to be there. And that's when they get introduced to each other. So they've been neighbors. They didn't know each other, but actually they then realize that they're both investigating the same thing. And then they can come together for a third act in which they use Sharon Tate as the bait to build a trap in which all three of them come together to take on the Manson family. Right. And, And here we're building some story beats into a narrative about three characters we're interested in that leads towards a symbolic use of violence at the end, which is something that should have happened in the original film. <laughs> right. Which, which like, you know, from before you see the film, you're like, well, that, that wouldn't, that's obvious that that would happen. Right. And then it doesn't. Yeah. And, it yeah. Just... and it, and instead, and instead what we get is like, we get this bit halfway through where, Tarantino literally shows us 10 minutes of a mediocre Western that I guess was on oh, the cutting room so floor for, long. you know, Hateful Eight or whatever. And just Ugh. just to reach the gag where 
he get he cuts partway through and resets the camera. That's all that that right. is for. And, it's just oh, a gag, man. and it doesn't that. it doesn't serve as any exactly. purpose. And I think that's another yeah. really weak thing about this movie that it's just like I remember thinking to myself like. If you want to make Bounty Law, just make Bounty Law. Like, don't make me, yeah. don't put it, don't make me watch yeah. it in a different movie that isn't about Bounty Law at all. Exactly. And even like the se- the extended segment that was like self referencing Glory's Bastards. Like, I don't need that. I don't need that stuff. Or if you're gonna do it, like, yeah. make it really yeah. quick and short, and have it be stuff that's gonna tell me something about Rick Dalton. And, or otherwise cut and, it out. And also, during all of those scenes, like he's playing with the aspect ratio and he's going to black and white and to different sort of grainy film elements. And it's it's like, I get what you're doing and I get that the point is you're, sh- you're, you're weaving Rick Dalton into this history. But again, it's, it's either too long or there's moments where like, so he'll cut away to something in a different aspect ratio to show a film, but then he'll cut away to the moment where Rick Dalton's trying out the flamethrower in rehearsal. And I'm like, oh, those are two different aspect ratios again. And they're both telling me different things. And then when he does the 10 minute, you know, mediocre Western segment later on for that one gag, he doesn't change the aspect ratio and it looks like it's shot right now. You know what? Right. That, that doesn't make sense. He doesn't sense. even follow his own rules. Exactly. And, and it's... You, you don't have to play by the rules, but you have to set yourself some boundaries in the way you're telling the story. And and he doesn't seem to do that at all. And also, there's there's that moment, again, this is just nitpicking now, but I think it, it's, it's explaining why we have to overhaul the story in order to make the most of these characters. But right. there's the, the moment where uh, they're on the set and the guy, um, I can't remember who it was, comes up to Rick Dalton and he's like, oh, didn't you nearly get cast in... Great Escape, and Rick Dalton explains that he he barely, nearly got cast in Great Escape, but but didn't. But in that, Tarantino's then also shot a scene from Great Escape where he's inserted Leonardo DiCaprio into that role, and it's like, and you're just like, so what is the truth? Exactly, he de- he decides to give us a what if within the what if of this story, and I guess you know it's 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 that question of if. You're either but weaving. It also doesn't mean anything. Exactly. It doesn't you're, matter. It doesn't have any significance. You're either weaving <laughs> Rick Dalton into the history of Hollywood in a Forrest Gump style way, or you're not. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's just. Yeah. There's no point doing a what if within a what if because at that point, who cares? I, you haven't given me enough reason to care about Rick Dalton. Why would I care? about you then showing me him potentially in the role that Steve McQueen played in The Great Escape, when you've already shown me a different Steve McQueen from the original Steve McQueen anyway, and and that's confusing right. enough. It, it becomes like... It's, it, 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 it's him using his cinema literacy to show off rather than to make interesting films. And, and also The Great Escape's not even, you know, it's not a deep cut, is it? It's, it's... No, it's just like, okay. I don't, like, listen, Quentin, if you want to make, like, The Double Life of Veronique about Rick Dalton, mm. you want to make Sliding Doors about Rick Dalton, <laughs> like, dude, that's fine. Like, then do that. <laughs> but, like, yeah. just, like, then, then commit to it. Yeah. Like, it feels like the movie doesn't commit to any of the possible, like, avenues that it brings up. Yeah, definitely. And I think, for me, that's what makes it so unsatisfying yeah but i i don't know i but if i do say so myself i I do think like you know the the overhauls that we've discussed i like now i'm at the point where i'm like man i want to see that movie yeah yeah no i i agree i think that's it right and i think it's about 
How can we make this an exciting story that uses these characters, that acknowledges what these characters can do and then gives them agency within a narrative and, and build towards a climax that is symbolic of all of the themes that Tarantino's sort of beginning to grasp at, um, but actually gives the meaning embedded within the story that he's trying to tell. And and that's, I mean, that's that's filmmaking, right? That's, that's cinema. <laughs> Now that show me, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe I can't believe we figured out what cinema we is. We did it. That's crazy. That's it. All in the first episode. On the that's first crazy. That, that's gonna make things easier going forward, I think. Yeah, now that we know what cinema is. <laughs> <laughs> that that'll help next time. I wish you would have known that before we started. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean I I I can't say that half my degree is film like you. But I can say that about two sevenths of it is. Um, and That's something. Yeah, take what you can get. For that, I mean, we we read um, V.F. Perkins' film as film, which kind of is a, I guess, a crash course in what film criticism probably would be in a broad sense. And the the thing Perkins keeps coming back to is, um, you know, what's the point of making a film unless you are using every moment of that film to embed what you're trying to say within it. Um, absolutely and and i think that yeah that becomes uh it becomes a good way of critiquing film but i think it also becomes a good question to keep asking yourself as a filmmaker or a screenwriter you know what when i choose to, to insert this scene into the film is it just for fun or you know not even that fun or is it to actually say something about the characters about the story or to build towards uh, the end and and the climax um, and and nothing in this film seems to be actually it's it's like you know it's like just like a a shot from a, a sawn off shotgun it's like just this big scatter shot of ideas and no sense that any of them are ever going to come together into something that that is meaningful and I think what we've discussed is about how do you begin to bring those things together but I, I think I, I, yeah exactly that is what makes Inglorious Bastards I think such such a successful film just in terms of storytelling because yeah it's you know two hours yeah. it's long but every minute counts if you miss anything that he shows you in that film like the the payoff won't won't work the way it does and yeah. you know it's all it's all building up to something like like this tangible concrete event and what's so brilliant about it is that the whole time you're like you're positive they're not going to succeed because you know the historical yeah. context and that's a film that you know it's about an event that everyone knows like worldwide like you know uh, newsflash quentin tarantino the world is not america <laughs> um, you know there are people that live outside of america and they don't yeah. have the same like cultural i mean even in america like i i'm probably the exception to the rule that i just like i have an affinity for like the mid 20th century that I know all this stuff and I happen to have older parents who were, you know, in their 20s in the 70s. So I was exposed to all that cultural stuff, but most people are not. You're a cinephile, and, right? Like you care right, about cinema yeah. and therefore you care about the history of cinema. Right. But most people, again, newsflash, Tarantino, yeah. most people don't, don't care yeah. about cinema as much as you do. Right. Give them a reason to care. <laughs> like, Yeah. And, and your movie should be understandable for any audience. And if you've written your movie correctly, like we should care about the characters in it as soon as possible 
And like, even if we don't necessarily like them, you know, it doesn't like it doesn't mean that characters have to be likable. But yeah. you know, we should care about them, and you know, we care plenty about you know antiheroes, and we want to know what happens to them and how they change. And I don't think I don't think the movie as it is really does that. So I think you know, our our one of our big structural changes here would be to you know, shift the story and the narrative and the focus of it so that we do care about them and that they do have arcs where they have to change and that we put them, you know, we put them in a crucible and they have to, you know, they walk through fire and come out different people on the other end. And that also doesn't have to be a positive change either, but that, that something changes about them. And that they have to go through these hard that things. that way as well. If you don't know anything about the history of this, you let's say right. you 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 don't even know that Hollywood existed before 1970. You know, to <laughs> you <laughs> to you, all of this is just new information. But actually, right. if you've given characters we care about, you know, I wouldn't even mind if people came out of the film and they were like you know looking up if rick dalton was real you know like surely that's sure yeah it doesn't matter you know because it's 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 about building an interesting narrative around that and and actually if you build characters we care about you put them through hell uh you make them grow or change and then we see them do something with that change at the end then it doesn't matter if we know the history it doesn't matter if we know the story if you know the story you're going to get way more out of it Right. But, but if you don't, you're still going to get something out of it. And I think that's the issue. You know, I saw in interviews Tarantino saying, oh, you don't need to know, but I would say do the homework. Yeah, you do need to know. You need to have such a clear idea of what this history is. Right. Otherwise, this makes no sense. I'm like, do my homework. That's your job. It's your, exactly. it's your job to tell me what the story is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, I think we did it. Not only did we figure we made out it what cinema is, but we fixed. <laughs> we fixed <laughs> we Once fixed. Upon a Time in Hollywood, and now it's we the best really movie ever. <laughs> and and if you've listened this far, and actually you loved the original Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, well, you're wrong. And you're thinking, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> yeah, and you're Sorry, thinking, you're 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 sad, you're sad that you've been listening on on the train to work, or um, you know. You've been sat at home <laughs> listening along, and you think you think no, but the the original was so good. It was so much better. I, I hate what you've done with it. I can't believe that you would like take shots at my boy Quentin like this. <laughs> um, then you can stop listening. That's fine. Well, and then also like in the long run, you you can consider yourself the winner here because the version you like better is the one that exists. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So in a way, yeah. like we're <laughs> the losers here, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like Tarantino got his way. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna change anything by by saying these things. So, <laughs> you know, like if somebody, de- but listen, like if if you or I may make a remake, of, yeah, I don't even know how how I would conjugate the next verb anyway like if, if if either one of us let me start this as a if either <laughs> one of us like <laughs> you know 20 30 years from now yeah. is like i'm gonna remake a movie like now and we decide i'm gonna remake once upon a time in hollywood like now yeah now we have a whole podcast <laughs> episode to go back to to reference the notes and yeah, i think yeah. honestly that's i don't think that's such a bad idea no. because i think it could have been so good it could be yeah. like that remake could be like like 
Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. To the original yes, Ocean's yes, Eleven. Yes, yeah. We're taking the 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 modern day rat pack of Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Margot Robbie. Right. And then we're And then one day, like it'll like from now like years from now, it'll be like uh I don't know, like 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 Brad Brad Pitt the fourth. Yeah. Yeah. And like I don't know, maybe one of them's an alien yeah. by then. Yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think and like possible. starring one Brad Pitt the fourth and an orb of energy. One of them will be an AI. <laughs> right, one yeah. of them will be an AI. Be <laughs> like, we just decided to stick Jimmy Stewart in there for whatever reason. I don't know because we can. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe. <laughs> okay. I'm just, cool. I'm just riffing how to end this podcast. Um, how how about after them how about let okay let's say it's 2045 <laughs> and you're oh, you're God. the harrison gale you yeah the, you're like auto not just a you're about you're about to make <laughs> you're about to make your ninth feature film wow and uh and someone just like says what if you made you know you remade once upon a time in hollywood and you and you think back to this podcast. You don't even need to re-listen. It's so fresh in your mind. It's, 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 as right. if it was like, uh, just I, now. Um, yeah. <laughs> no are you going to remake it? I've got it. Uh, would you do it? Yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> yeah, I say no, no, no qualification. Like I, th- like I think what we've come up with like sounds so compelling to me, and just yeah, I think and fun. Yeah, and you know? yeah, and and fun in a way that like. Once it, the current version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like, like clearly it's just fun for Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> like clearly that was just him like goofing around on set and like yeah. he was like, I'm just gonna do what I feel like for two hours and forty minutes and like okay, like maybe it's a little fun for yeah. Leo and and Brad, but I even think that maybe they like on set would be like, ugh, when is Quentin gonna wrap this and go home? <laughs> Like just, yeah, but they yeah. don't want to say anything because they don't want to. They don't yeah. want to be rude, and they want to. You want to do movie. another take of me driving down the street? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do it again. <laughs> you're like, okay, as long as you're paying yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I I would. I think. Would you do it? Um, I would also. I would think I would also remake it. Yeah. I I think that is there is a fun film in this, and I think as what well, it is like a lot of what people have praised about this film is is like oh you know we're really getting to see the end of golden age hollywood like that that's 1969 like that feeling of that time i don't think we are but i think that that's an interesting thing to explore (laughs) that would be cool if we did that if that actually happened yeah that sounds awesome (laughs) i want i want to see that and also like you know maybe i wouldn't make one that's two hours 40 but i want to make something that would be earning that runtime right um and i got it right Good. Maybe we will. Yeah. Catch, we'll catch us, you know, in 25 years' time having a crack. Okay. I think that's everything. Um, <laughs> that's All right. It. Uh, that's me done. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to? <laughs> yeah. Yo, I'm in now. Y'all want anything? What? I'm just trying. I don't know how we're. <laughs> How are we meant to finish this? Do you want? Do you want to do social uh, media plugs? Um, of our own social media? No, of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah. can find Brad yeah, so Pitt on can... Twitter. <laughs> 
you can, and he's also on Instagram at footdude five seven six. No, um, Harrison, where can people find you online? <laughs> If they want to, if they want to harass you about your opinions about this, yeah, film. please do. I will <laughs> <laughs> don't don't harass me in general, but harass me about films. I will always okay. always put up with that. Um, you can you can find me on Instagram at Harrison Who, and <laughs> similarly on Twitter at Harrison Gale Who, and I'm also I'm also on Letterboxd. Just search my first name and my last name under members, yeah. and I'll come up. And, uh, you know, uh, looking for an internship, check me out on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, what else? You know, that's that's really about it for me. Um, I have an email, but I'm not going to give it out. Don't give it out. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do, it out. I do find it very funny that a friend of mine, like, rather than the Gmail, um, I don't know what that's called, like, like domain. Like, yeah. for, I guess he, like, made it really early, so it says Google Mail. <laughs> that's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> ah, my, uh, my name at googlemail.com. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and uh, Letterboxd <laughs> as well, at Caleb Lebster. Because um, <laughs> I made all, all of my social media accounts when I was thirteen. Uh, actually, I didn't make Letterbox when I was thirteen, but you got to kind of stick with what you know by that point. So it's true. I think um, I think it works for you. It, and maybe, it very, very much ties in. Like it gives gives me gives me like the lobster motif. Vibes, yeah. which, <laughs> Caleb is. Are you the sole founder or co-founder? No, I am a co-founder. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta tell them the name of the meme group. Um, what is it? Lobo memes for <laughs> Lobo memes for mob mentality teams. You can find yeah. me on there as well. You know, and it's just lobster memes, but it's good. Yeah, I, I, it's a page I haven't touched in a good like eight nine months. But yeah, yeah. Refresh you know. your refresh your Facebook feed. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe when we we come up with a name for this podcast, we'll we'll have an email. But yeah. <laughs> until in the meantime, then, uh, just talk to us personally. Yeah, or just you know, type in any name at Google Mail. <laughs> just yeah, and it'll find its do way. You think, do you think Quentin Tarantino set up a, a Gmail back in the day, and he's just Quentin Tarantino at Google Mail dot com? Try it out <laughs> at Google. Yeah, at Google Mail, and then let us let us know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he responds. Yeah, do try this at home. <laughs> um, I think that's everything. So thanks for listening. And there might be more of these. <laughs> yeah, who's to um, say? Who's to say? Um, we we could bye. all be dead tomorrow. Do we have a sign? Do you want to? Do you want to just riff a sign off oh, for God. the podcast? <laughs> uh, um. Uh. uh now I just keep thinking of already existing catchphrases. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, that's like, not good. Or, that's all, folks. Or, that, yeah, bet you, sweet bippy. Maybe we just maybe we'll just each week we'll take a line from the film to riff uh, a a kind of ending. Ooh, yeah. Do you I know, know what line? Oh, there's a, a very specific line I'm thinking of. Just say it. The <laughs> no, no. I want you to guess. <laughs> no, no. It's Brad Pitt says. And away we go. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, that's...
<laughs> Ouch. You just killed our entire potential listener base. I hope you're happy. That's it. Uh, <laughs> no episode two after that. But if you no want, if you want to say two. it again and also not laughing as you're delivering it, feel free to no. make that the sign. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> that was a maybe you like it production. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> <laughs>